going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Welcome to the newly rejigged edition of the Calgary Today podcast. Each week, we will gather some of your favorite interviews from the past five days give you a snapshot of the great conversations we have on the show. Make sure to look for a new episode to start each weekend, perfect for your drive around Calgary and Southern Alberta, or you're up doing your chores, whatever the case may be. Let's get started, shall we? There was no shortage of storylines we kept on top of this week. With the new provincial budget, it led to a few questions about parks and recreation areas. The Alberta Wilderness Association had a lot to say amidst all the controversy. The budget also led to questions about childcare and whether the accreditation process was too arduous. The Association of Early Educators of Alberta weighed in on what it could mean for parents. The COVID-19 virus has taken a lot of headlines and some work being done here in this city received some federal funding on Friday. But we'll start this podcast off talking about data and whether we're measuring the right things when we're talking about government spending. This is the new Calvary Today podcast. Peter joins us now on the program. And one of the things that I took away from this, Peter, was that we have to be careful about what we are trying to measure uh, when it comes to the budget. No, exactly. We have to we have to really think about what we're measuring and especially how people and how organizations are going to react to those measurements and how they're going to try to make those metrics work. Because sometimes it's going to be in very unintended ways. Now, let's let's focus in on a couple of big issues that took center stage over the weekend, for example, in health and education. Let's start with health. Um, outcomes is an interesting one, and, and the metrics and measurements are interesting because we're measuring dollars we spend versus the overall health of the province, or are we, I guess? Yeah, this is the, the kind of big debate, and, and something that's really missing from the debate about healthcare right now is there's a lot of focus on the cost of primary health care. Um, and this is why you have this, you know, conflict between Health Minister Tyler Shandro and like the Alberta, Alberta Medical Association and, and primary health physicians over, you know, how much those services are costing. Um, and, and in a way, the AMA and, and doctors have a point in the sense that, you know, even if you spend more money on primary care, that can save you in the long run because that reduces costs for hospitalizations, it reduces costs for specialists down the line or emergency room visits, and that's not part of that equation. And so sometimes you have these situations where primary health may look more expensive, but it actually is saving the province overall in terms of health care. And if you don't really consider that, you can end up costing yourself more than you thought in the, in the first place. Is that one of the things maybe missing in that whole conversation is the proactive health aspect of it? Yeah, you might spend a little bit more upfront on some of the things that uh, you need to kind of implement a system like that, but it, you fail to take into consideration that, hey, maybe you're not going to have to spend as much money 20 years down the road, say. No, exactly. And, and that's the point a lot of physicians are making is saying this is going to save us in the long term. And it's actually, it's good that doctors are spending time with patients who have complex health needs because it's going to be able to address those those health issues early rather than late. And it's really interesting. There's actually two clinics in Alberta 
that are paid slightly differently than the rest of primary health uh, in the province. And that's the Tabor Clinic and something called the Crowfoot Village Family Practice here in in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And they get paid, rather than every time a doctor sees a patient they get paid, they just get a set fee per patient per year. And so it kind of shifts their focus. So they don't focus so much on volume of how many times they see a patient. They really focus on trying to be efficient with their care, but also very preventative because those patients are going to be with them for quite a few years. And so the better they do at providing that really kind of robust care and really focusing on preventative health, that means those patients won't need as much health care in the future. So it saves them money and it saves the province money. And it's, it's really one of those situations where changing the way we measure something really changes the outcomes and changes how we do things. Well, it really changes the conversation as well, right? Because now you're starting to focus in on the patient and the outcome versus the just the simple dollar spent. Because as far as I see it, you know, spending 15 minutes or trying to allot just 15 minutes per patient might not necessarily uh, be ROI positive because you're going to have to see that patient probably more often, especially if they have more complex needs. No, exactly. And that's and that's what a lot of physicians are saying right now in terms of kind of some of the changes to the complex modifiers and things like that is that if you make it less, you know, not as easy to bill for a complex issue, doctors might respond by saying, you know what, we can only talk about one issue per visit or we'll have to split up those complex visits into into several, you know, we'll have to do three visits over a period of time rather than one comprehensive visit. But that really has really negative impacts on long-term health and prevent, uh, prevention because if, if a patient's only talking to a doctor about one thing at a time, you're not really providing that comprehensive care because a lot of times with health issues is that they're linked, right? You know, stress at work might be causing back pain issues, might be causing, you know, might be your diet too. So you have to talk about those things comprehensively. And this is where the doctors have a point. But I, I think also Minister Shandro has a point in that um, – we have to look at these things differently. We can't just address them through uh, pain more. We should really talk about um, expanding and looking at ways to expand what are called the alternative relationship plans. Where these are the things that uh, Tabor and Crowfoot uh, were implementing. Um, I, I think they're they're called blended capitation systems. I think they they do work better for primary health care, but they have to be very carefully considered. You can't just you know, run them in, in two months and say, hey, everyone's doing capitation. And they don't work for everybody either, right? It doesn't work for surgeons, right? Surgeons mm-hmm. are going to have to do do surgeries and they don't really control whether you're going to have uh, a surgery in the future or not. So Another major topic of conversation, especially mm-hmm. with the rallies over the weekend, centering around education. And I know that yeah. there's been some rumblings again about returning to grade three uh, year-end tests to gauge where the kids are at and that kind of thing. How important is it for us to have as much of a holistic conversation around education as we just had with healthcare? We need to have a really comprehensive uh, conversation about education. One of the, um, I think, pitfalls of this move towards uh, standardized testing is that standardized testing is actually a a really poor indicator of a student's, uh, their ability to learn and their knowledge. Um, And it actually is a really bad predictor of their success in college and in the workforce. They're, They're actually just, they're terrible tools. And the reason is, is because most tests have to be standardized so they end up being multiple choice and you take really complex phenomenon and you reduce it down to like whether or not a student memorized something. And it's, it's just, not, it's just a poor tool and you end up with schools that react very poorly to them and they end up becoming basically test factories where students are learn are taught how to take a test 
but not really how to think. And that's and that's problematic. Now, from a parent's perspective, I know I'm going to get these kinds of messages is, hey, boy, I deserve to know where my kid is at. Is there mm-hmm. better ways of gauging that? And I'll use an example of I know some schools have already uh, utilized real time uh, report cards, essentially. And so with every week, it's kind of updated online. Yeah. So there's other ways of doing this. Um, I think, you know, tests do have a place for sure. But sometimes things like uh, school projects, just the grades that they get, you know, uh, throughout the school year are a good indication of how this, the, the students are pro- progressing. And this is one of those things that we have to, you know, trust teachers, that teachers are going to understand what students uh, are struggling with, what they're doing good at. And a test is not going to be able to tell you that better than a teacher, because again, the, the test really can capture a lot of those other things that uh, you can through project work, through observation in the classroom and things like that. I suppose another aspect of this is the contextual piece. And you mentioned complex factors when it comes to healthcare. Well, in education, you don't necessarily know what might be going on behind the scenes, not just with, you know, a kid having a bad day for the test day, but even beyond that is their ability to learn might have been hindered by the classroom setting that they might be involved in. Yeah. And then that's something too. So, you know, that's another measurement that uh, other, you know, um, educational systems look at. They look at class size. They look at, you know, what type of instruction is happening, you know, whether there's a blend of different types of learning. Those, are, those things are important too, right? So the issue with any of these metrics is that they can become the sole focus of an organization. And that has happened before, especially in the United States, where there was a bunch of school systems that were so focused on standardized tests that they really eroded classroom learning, again, because they were, they were just teaching kids how to write tests or in really... In some situations, the, the teachers were cheating. They were going back and changing students' marks because if they didn't, their school would close or they'd get fired or, or you know, really harsh penalties for these things. So there has to be a balance about uh, what we look look for in education. When we talk about provincial budgets here, Peter, one of the, the questions we keep coming back to is this has to be more about money or can it? Yeah, and, and that's the, the point I was making in my in my article is that you, you can't just look at the costs of things. You have to look at what those costs achieve and how, what the whole system, how the whole system operates. If you just take one little part of a system, for instance, when, with healthcare, and just measure the cost of, you know, physician compensation in primary healthcare, that doesn't tell you about the whole system. Are people healthier? Are we working on preventative health? You know, are we having impacts on worker productivity because of healthcare costs? Those things have to be considered, and focusing just on one little thing is always going to lead to to errors. And can that also have a ramification down the line where all of a sudden you're having to make up for lost time because you were focused on just one aspect of all of the data that's out there? No, exactly, and that's a good example, again, is education, right? If um, the UCP is proposing to use uh, labor market outcomes, which is basically employment of graduates, uh, after school as, as a metric for evaluation. But in, in a sense, what that does is, is it causes schools to focus only on areas where there is kind of predictable and reliable employment. But that doesn't get them to focus on things like entrepreneurship and creating new industries and, and teaching new skills that there might be higher risk to those. But those are what you need for an economy to grow and change. And I think that's what we need in Alberta right now. So focusing just on employment two years after school is very short-sighted, and it's probably going to get us to focus on the wrong things. 
And I know that some people are going to listen to this conversation and say, oh, you're just trying to push back on change. That's not necessarily the case. The the case being is, what are we trying to achieve? We need to have a goal. We need to have a vision so that we can achieve that vision versus just trying to, I'll, I'll call it, chase the money. Yeah, and and I think there is a, a, a need for change uh, in, in, a lot, in a lot of things. Um, but we have to be very careful about how we measure that change and how we how we really assess the impacts and the outcomes of that. And we had to be considerate about that. As I've said before, uh, Peter Shriver is the author of Bad Data, Why We Measure the Wrong Things and Often Miss the Metrics That Matter. I'll post a link to his piece from the Globe and Mail on my Twitter, at Calgary Today. Peter, thanks so much for the time, as always, this afternoon. It was great being here, Joe. And once again, it's a great debate to have as we try to figure out what exactly is most important right now. So we'll continue to have this discussion in the days and weeks ahead. to ask of Grace Wark, who is a conservation specialist with the Alberta Wilderness Association. Grace, welcome to the program. Uh, first off, your thoughts and reaction to hearing what has uh, been announced by the province. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Uh, so, you know, what really stuck out to us in that proposal is that the government was saying that of these 164 sites, they're mainly small and underutilized provincial recreation areas. And this stood out to us because it underplays the conservation and the recreation values that Albertans have affixed to these spaces, as well as it kind of buries that there's, you know, 10 provincial parks and nine natural areas within that proposed list that are, you know, up for removal. So this is a major concern for us because it means removing those from public control and that the public would no longer have a say in how those areas are managed. Is the, are there opportunities, I suppose, to maybe open it up to whether it's the public se- or private sector, whether mm-hmm. it's to you know nonprofits, other mm-hmm. groups to say, hey, maybe we can take advantage of these opportunities that are out there? Right. It's hard to say at this point. You know, there's very limited information coming out about this. We were kind of blindsided by this proposal. You know, it came out in uh, in the budget that, you know, they did want to modernize parks legislation, but we had no idea that this was going to be accompanied by this 164 sites. So at this point in time, you know, we're hoping that there are more opportunities, but we really didn't see a whole lot of consultation leading up to this proposal. And that's something that we would have wanted to have seen just because, you know, Albertans are interested in how these public spaces are managed. And obviously there's some ramifications. And, and earlier in the hour, I mentioned um, Little Bow Provincial Park is one mm. that is really close to my hometown. Right. I know how as much as it's probably not the first thing you think of when you think of staycations and that kind of thing, mm. but I know that the, the, the community of Champion, as an example, might be seeing some flow through traffic. Mm. All of a sudden, they've been already struggling. They may now have to struggle even a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The accessibility of these spaces with a proposal like this, you know, we're definitely going to see changes. If people are seeing, you know, there's that one list of 20 sites that are either going to have partial or full closures, they say, you know, where did my favorite campsite go? I no longer have that opportunity to go out on the long weekend and to be able to develop that relationship with that natural space. You know, maybe Albertans are going to be less inclined to want to support their park system moving forward. The other question that comes up is, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, is the protected Mm -hmm. area aspect of things. I mean, these are some areas that uh, have some historical, may have some historical significance to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one thing with this proposal is the the provincial parks and the natural areas that I mentioned, you know, those spaces are being taken out 
of this park system. And, you know, they have been used in the past. Uh, these are these are provincial designations that allow for the conservation of natural heritage, of species at risk, of important habitats, as well as facilitating important low-impact recreational activities and recreational opportunities for Albertans that are compatible with sustainability. So as we're taking these out of the public control, there's no longer going to be that type of conservation management aspect. And that's really something to be worried about. Did we need to do a better job in the past of maintaining some of these areas so that they didn't become uh, kind of, I'll call it the the, the wastelands, I suppose, of, of mm. what this province is trying to maybe frame it as? You know, that's a really good question. And I, I it's hard to say whether or not they have actually become Wastelands, you know, as our, our, you know, our parks are becoming more and more popular, our campgrounds, there's going to be just more and more of a desire to use them on the long weekends. And so we're going to be relying actually on these small provincial recreation areas to buffer a little bit of that intense desire to go out and camp, to go out and recreate. Um, so we really need these smaller spaces as opportunities. I was going to ask about that side of it is the the trickle down effect, so to speak, should a number of these parks go uh, dormant, all of a sudden mm. it's going to put a little bit more of, a, of an emphasis on the uh, ones that are still existing. Yeah, yeah, we definitely could see a shift in pressure, you know, to these areas that the province is currently calling the crown jewels. You know, what does that mean for their management? Are they going to become overloaded? We do see really intense recreation in certain parts of Alberta, places like Banff National Park. And so, yeah, how are we going to buffer that as we're taking away these spaces? What would you like to see the province do here? You know, we really just want more information at this point. Uh, as I mentioned, this is something that kind of came out of the blue, this 164-site proposal. And so we would have liked to have already seen public consultation opportunities, uh, but because they weren't there moving forward, yeah, we just want to start the conversation with the government and, uh, you know, do our best to be involved in this process. And I get the sense as well that this isn't a matter of, hey, we need to have it status quo. I mean, if changes need to be made, then changes need to be made. But mm -hmm. at the same time, there there should be a little bit more uh, conversation had about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Public consultation is just so important. And as we know, so many people care about these areas. They use them all the time. What would you recommend for our listeners if they happen to be maybe concerned about the situation or just want to know more information about it? Yeah, absolutely. I, w I would definitely recommend uh, getting onto the parks website, and as well as you can always email people like the minister um, and just let them know what your concerns are. Let them know that you care about these park sites and maybe tell them a little bit about your favorite ones just to make sure that you know we maintain them into the future. I appreciate your time today, Grace. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Joe. Grace Wark is conservation specialist with the Alberta Wilderness Association. Again, we reached out to the minister's office as well and hoping to get uh, someone on from the minister's office as well before too long because I think that this is a, a big issue for a lot of people here in this province, not just in Calgary, but across this province, based on the fact that all you need to do is look at how often people uh, are selling out the, the camping sites across all of the different parks and it begs a really interesting question beyond that is, are we running the system as efficiently as we should be? And it was interesting as I, as I was reading through the, um, the province's website and, and going through what's being proposed here last night, I posted a link up on Twitter and my Facebook page just to get a sense. And the reaction was pretty visceral right off the bat. 
A lot of people saying, whoa, 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 what the heck is going on here? A lot of people worried about their, you know, maybe one of their favorite trails in, in K-Country, or maybe it's one of the smaller parks. And, and again, maybe there is some opportunity to expand it. Is it worth shuttering some of these sites? Maybe if it gets three visitors a year, what's the point of keeping it, uh, keeping it open? But again, there are ramifications down the line for the surrounding community and also for the existing facilities who are going to be booked even heavier because now all of a sudden you don't have that buffer anymore. People, a lot of people like their quiet time. And all of a sudden they're being told, okay, you got to go to these select locations because they're the most popular of them. Alberta's Children's Services Minister is defending the move to drop a child care accreditation system that the province says was running parallel to licensing. Rebecca Schulz says it was too much duplication that in some cases took individual centers up to 200 hours just to document. More than 95% of the licensed centers in Alberta were also accredited. It was no longer the measure of quality and safety that it once was. And so what we've done is decided to reduce the accreditation um, piece, eliminate that red tape, and build the high quality and safety standards into the licensing requirements for child care centers. And Schultz did go on to say that this is all coming at the expense of spending time with the most important people, of course, the kids. One of the organizations that we had met with had cited that this was more than 200 hours uh, that was put into accreditation. It had become a largely subjective process where the basic requirements were built into licensing. And she went on to say parents see individual care providers as the most important aspect of providing the service. And she says that's why the government kept to wage top-ups to keep the service delivery consistent. Meantime, NDP leader Rachel Notley counters, eliminating the accreditation in the system will lead to a buyer beware situation. So I wanted to get somebody who sees the day-to-day operations of some of these child care centers. And Nick, uh, Nikki Duplanko has been on the program before. She joins us now, vice chair of the Association of Early Education educators of Alberta. And Nikki, as you've listened to the minister and as you've heard some of the reaction back and forth, I just wanted to first off, get your initial thoughts on some of these changes. Well, I think um, uh, from the perspective of the association and probably most programs and educators in the province, it was a shocking announcement. Um, We did not see it coming. And um, so that I think that was the first couple of days was was just pure shock, and then um, I guess the the thing now is you know what what next? What is the the ministers mentioned that when the licensing standards come up in uh, regulations come up in October, that some of the accreditation standards will be rolled into that. But um, from from the point of view of the association, we're a little nervous about that since there was no consultation about this big sweeping change of eliminating accreditation to begin with. The minister has said that it uh, gets rid of some duplication. Is that a fair statement in, in your eyes? No, I wouldn't say so. So licensing really is about minimum standards. It's about health and safety, um, you know, physical space requirements. It's just real basics. And um, where accreditation is about setting standards of excellence. And so, like, within the accreditation process, there's um, criteria and indicators that help a program get to a higher level of quality. So that's things like evaluating program planning, um, practices that support children's development, um, self-assessments about um, continual improvement, um, you know, policies and practices that guide 
the programs themselves. So it's they're totally different, uh, totally different processes. As far as the paperwork is concerned, that's another thing she mentioned is some uh, some of these centers are spending hours on the paperwork, the accreditation side. Is that something that is is bogging things down from from your provider's perspectives? I think that the accreditation it was burdensome to for some. I mean, it it is work, and as it should be, it's about you know setting goals and achieving those goals, pulling you know making making changes. And so the in the the problem is that right now. So even if there was, even if there does need to be some changes to that, it, it's March now, and in, in October, um, we have until October until we have new quality standards being rolled out. So what what is going to be in place to hold programs accountable to um, high quality early learning and care in this province? Is that the biggest issue in your eyes? Is that all of a sudden, without this, there might be a perception of it might be a free for all out there? Yeah, I, I think that in the lack of consultation, the association has over a thousand members, people working directly with uh, young children and their families, and we were blindsided by this decision. So I, I, we're really nervous about, um, you know, what will the consultation process, what will this new regulatory system be like? Accreditation was, we were the only province in this country that had accreditation, and that's really something that we should be proud of. And so we... Like we can, we can build a really good model. We have lots of people in this province that have a lot of knowledge and experience. Certainly, the people that were involved with accreditation, with validating and and rolling out the process. Um, so I think if we if we can have a robust cons- consultation and we can work together, we could probably build something amazing that would definitely be in the best interest of children and families in this province. So I really hope that that's what's going to happen moving forward. It sounds to me like you're not opposing change. It's just a matter of, hey, we would have liked to know about what the changes are going to be or are going to be in the future. You bet. Like in this field, like most fields, there's constantly um, best practices being updated. Uh, so we we are aware of that and we, you know, we're constantly, and actually accreditation was really about that, was about, you know, looking at what the best practices, what, you know, what do we need to do to change? It wasn't a static process. It was always about continual improvement. So it absolutely, everybody's, everybody wants that. Everybody wants to continually improve and if things need to change, but the thing is we can't, we need to be involving the right people. Does this also put a little bit more onus on parents to make sure that they are uh, looking up and doing bigger and better background checks maybe on some of the the daycare or childcare centers that are out there? Those, you know, like I said, those basic licensing requirements will stay in place. So I think health and safety is um, in, will, will continue to be insured for um, Alberta's families. Um, but the, you know, things about families will need to be asking about, you know, some of those more quality elements, like what do program plans look like? What, do, you know, even what does menu planning look like? You know, what are the level of education of the staff? Do do your staff have ongoing professional development? Um, you know, what, is there a curriculum guide uh, framework that guides their work? Things like that. That's kind of stuff that accreditation was doing for children and families in this province. Now families are going to have to have a look at those elements. What's your main message to the province as you go over the next few months here? Let's work together. We have the best interests of children and families in mind, so let's work together. Let's come up with an Alberta-made regulatory model, and let's, let's, do, let's do it. Let's have a high-quality early learning and child care system in Alberta. Nikki, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us.
Dr. Dylan Pillay, joining us here on the program. And, and Dr. Walk us through the research that you've been uh, tasked with here. Yes, yeah, so we're very excited to get funding from the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. Um, what we're proposing to do um, is to develop a new algorithm for testing uh, for epidemics, uh, especially viral epidemics. And essentially what we're saying is in the proposal and what we were funded to do is to develop a tool to diagnose viruses like COVID-19, not in hospitals um, or, um, you know, in laboratories, but to take that test or that diagnostic test, take it out to the community and test people in the community. Have you been working on this for a while now? Yeah, you know, I got into this probably 20 years ago looking at rapid diagnostic tests and what really, um, you know, uh, inspired us to, um, uh, you know, go for this funding is our work in low-middle-income countries. So we work in places like Africa with very little infrastructure and it forced us to think outside the box, how can we develop a diagnostic test that you can take into a, a place where there's no electricity, no, no laboratory. And so we're using some of that experience here now um, to develop a tool for COVID-19. Now, three U of C-led research teams, how many people are on each team and is each team in charge of a specific angle to these tests? Um, well, our group uh, in- includes um, at least five different uh, members of our team. Uh, my co-lead uh, investigator is actually from San Francisco, uh, Dr. Charles Chu, who really pioneers uh, what's called metagenomic sequencing. And that's a fancy word for saying that we can sequence DNA from a patient sample and identify things inside that sample like viruses. So he's, um, you know, contributing in that way. We also have virologists like Dr. Guido Van Marl here at, at UFC, uh, as well as some of our public health colleagues. So that's our team. It's a medical scientific team. There are two other grants that were awarded, not in directly in, me- in the medical scientific arena, um, but um, they are also uh, supported by CHR in this call. In your eyes, how far does $1.6 million take you? It takes us a long way. Um, you know, we, I'm very excited because we can really translate some of our basic science findings directly to patient care. And this uh, epidemic, um, as bad as it is, um, we have to turn a, you know, um, a bad thing potentially into a good thing. And we can uh, develop a tool, a diagnostic test that's cheap, effective, uh, and take that test to the community so folks don't come into, you know, patient centers or um, waiting rooms and infect others, we can take the test to, to the community and, and then uh, help to quarantine individuals who are infected and let others who are negative for the test go back to work so we maintain our productivity. Given that the situation is, is ever unfolding, does that put you under a, a bit of a, a microscope? Do you feel like you're under any pressure at all? Yes, you know, we see this funding as a privilege and, and you know, we have to do our best to come up with some answers. Uh, and so there is uh, some pressure to, uh, in this particular instance, and this particular uh, rapid uh, response grant to come up with some quick wins. And uh, so we intend to do that. Do you have any things that you need to tick off the checklist, so to speak? In the, in the short term, I mean. 
I think the first, uh, you know, port of call, so to speak, is to get um, our assays up and running. Um, and we have some partners that are going to support us in that. Uh, this particular test is on a cartridge, and so we want to get the the COVID-19 test working on the cartridge, um, and uh, then we'll look at deploying it into real-world scenarios. Do you have a timeline in mind? Well, um, it's ambitious, but we hope to have a point-of-care tool available um, in six months from now. Uh, and then by the, by, by the one-year mark, we hope to actually uh, start to see how that test could be deployed into the community. Where, what does that look like? Where would we place the test? Who would do that? particular test, how the, how would the result be reported back? Uh, there's a lot more to the implementation of something like this. But in the first phase, it's mostly to do with um, developing the tool, um, the product development, if you will. Uh, and then the second phase will be more the deployment. And you mentioned as well, this is a bit of an opportunity where maybe you, you lay the groundwork down for um, few, not just COVID-19, but also different diseases, anything else that might be happening on a, on a global stage. Exactly. So our algorithm that we're proposing um, can detect any virus. It doesn't matter if it's COVID-19 or in five or 10 years, we have another virus that emerges and spreads. Uh, this particular strategy that we propose, which is called, again, metagenomic sequencing, will sequence the sample, identify the virus, and de rapidly develop the point-of-care tools so that uh, we can quickly identify who's infected and implement some kind of a quarantine so that it doesn't spread in the community. We talk a lot about the world marketplace and how people and goods can move so freely, which can be a negative, but I suppose in your line of work, it can be almost a good thing, I suppose, because you can now connect with people halfway across the globe and get expertise from a variety of vantage points. Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the perfect example of that is that this virus was, the entire structure of the virus was known uh, within a matter of weeks and made publicly available by Chinese scientists. That enabled other um, countries to quickly uh, develop a, a tool to identify the virus. And that information, you know, was so quickly uh, made available and that didn't happen, you know, 20 years ago. So this is a, this is a big change. But we do have to have these tools uh, locally available so that as um, these infections or these, these, these epidemics pop up in different areas, we're ready to quickly uh, snuff it out. Dr. Pillay, I appreciate your time and all the best as you go forward with your research. More than welcome. Thanks very much for uh, interviewing me. Dr. Dylan Pillay over at the University of Calgary, once again showing some world-class things happening right in our city, even in the midst of what's going on with coronavirus. That'll do it for this edition of the New Calgary Today podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you have a moment, do us a huge favor and leave us a rating and review as those kinds of things can help spread the word. Special thanks to our technical producer, Matt Ayer, for his work on the podcast this week. Until next week, thanks for tuning in.